Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one I'll be trying to find out about their preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Equally at home on stage as he is on screen, award-winning actor Adrian Lester has played lead roles in Hamlet, Othello, Henry V, Company and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and appeared in films such as Primary Colours and The Day After Tomorrow. He's perhaps best known on TV in the UK for his role as Michael Mickey Brick Stone in the BBC series Hustle. But I first saw him in his critically acclaimed role of Rosalind in Cheek by Jowl's all-male production of As You Like It in 1991. And I was really excited to get a chance to catch up with him and talk about it earlier this year. So my guest this week is Adrian Lester. His uh, Rosalind in As You Like It in the 1991 version by Cheek by Jowl, directed by Declan Donnellan and uh, designed by Nick Olmerod, the, the wonderful creative team, uh, which is a production I was lucky enough to see and thought was amazing. Oh, um, but just be, can we just... Yeah. Can we just go back a little bit, Adrian, because hmm. we've got something common, because youth theatre was something that was really important for me in my life. Uh, I was yeah. at school, I wanted to be an actor, I didn't know how to do it, and then I found the Everyman Youth Theatre. And I know that you were in uh, you were in a cathedral choir and an youth company, but you found Birmingham Youth Theatre, and that's sort of where the acting started for you, wasn't it? Yeah, youth theatre was really important to me too. Um, I I didn't... I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what it was, what acting was without the youth theatre, you know, watching these people um, take on characters and improvise and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, it was at the Midlands Arts Centre in Birmingham where I would spend most of my time, even when I'm supposed to be doing homework, I was over there on my skateboard and uh, looking at puppetry and dance and Tai Chi and, you know, lots of break dancing we did up there as well. They would, they would give over the dance studio on a Sunday afternoon and let all these kids come in. DJs would set up and we'd have about three hours and all these crews from different parts of Birmingham would just, you know, practice their moves and stuff. Um, but it was there that you, the youth theatre really um, I got bitten by the bug and, uh, you know, it began there for me, really. But before performing was part of your life before then, was it via music that that, that you performed as a, uh, as a singer before then, had you? Yeah, I... I 
joined the I was you know started at primary school singing um stuff uh, at mass because I went to Roman Catholic primary school and senior school and um they did the, the cathedral choir sent out I don't know flyers or just contacted the schools in Birmingham saying you know are there any kids that you think would, would like to join the choir and I got handed one of these um flyers got a little phone number on a piece of paper and a person to call and place to go because it was never no, no texting and no emails so it was just that so uh went along auditioned and I found myself at nine years old being one of the probationers wearing a purple cassock and um standing in the front singing in a treble voice at the at the choir so I did that for about five years and um didn't really know what I was doing I was just opening my mouth and letting the sound come out and uh, then I started started to understand later and really loved it Mm-hmm. But did you do opera as well? It was, yeah. So I joined the, the cathedral choir at nine. And then one of the kids that was in the choir, he said, oh, you'd like this. You should come along to this group that I'm a part of. And I went, oh, what was it? And it was the Children's Opera Company at Midlands Art Centre. So I went along and I was about 13, maybe. And I was a young 13. I was one of those um, summer birthday kids so I was always the youngest in my year and um I went along and I auditioned and I got in and um we did two operas and in one of them it was called uh Dragon Tales of Granny Chang and in one of them that one the members of the Birmingham Youth Theatre came in and they would enact a, a dumb show if you like they would do these complicated mime stories uh, to to um, illustrate what we were singing about as as um, the, the, you know these kids, and um, I remember spending more time watching them than I was watching the conductor and trying to keep time with my piece. And I was I was fascinated by what they were able to do with nothing, just these big costumes and the, and they were like teenagers, you know, they were sixteen, seventeen, and they were just, but they were fantastic. And I thought I've got to join this group. And then at fourteen, I joined the youth theatre, and um, the the first play I did was a play called The Walking Class. And um, it was on at Midlands Art Centre and then at the Birmingham Rep. Yeah, and I was 14. So was that your first time doing character? <laughs> I don't know if I managed any kind of character. <laughs> it just, I kind of just got on there and thought, oh, hang on, if I, as long as I don't bump into anything or trip up, um, I'll be fine. Um, but it was the first time I was on stage speaking any, any, anything, doing any kind of character at all. Um, one of the the one of the, the ethos of the Birmingham Youth Theatre at that stage with Malcolm Cleland and Derek Nichols was that we would always play ourselves, we'd always play kids, bar the odd exception where somebody played a dad or a mom or something. But we didn't sort of pretend to be older married couples or anything like that. We just ha- we had to be the age that we were. So they had plays created specifically for kids, for the youth. Um, and uh, it was about a rights to work march organised from Birmingham to London by this I'm a teenager, and that was the, that was the play. That was the first time I was on stage saying anything. So going from Birmingham to London, I mean, you went from there to RADA. I know there's a bit of a journey in there, <laughs> but what in that journey did someone just at uh, the Derek or Malcolm at the Youth Theatre did they say identify you as someone who had something and encourage you to train for drama, attempt for drama school or something? It, it was, um, yeah, they kind of. You can have the idea, but both both the, the directors said, actually, yeah, we think this would be a good idea too. Um, and uh, Derek gave me my first play to read, which was uh, Measure for Measure. And I couldn't understand what was going on in the Shakespeare. I had no idea. Um, and so I got the play and I got a dictionary and I read it really slowly with the dictionary, just went word to word. 
And by the time I got halfway through, I thought it was, I mean, apart from there was the clown stuff, you know, with the, 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 the whole house and all that kind of stuff. I could yeah. not get my head around that. But the central story of um, Isabella and Angelo and Claudio, I, I just thought was brilliant especially having gone through cathedral choir and seen mass every, every Sunday. You, you got it. I got it. I went, Ooh, what if that happened? That'd be amazing. So, uh, I, I got hold of that idea and it was, uh, it was brilliant. And, um, I, that was one of my speeches for drama school was, uh, Angelo's first speech, which was what's this, what's this. Oh. In measure but, for measure. but like me, you know, there weren't, there weren't actors in your family or, you know, in, in thinking of acting as a profession, for, you know, for your family, was that seen as, were they worried about you going into an insecure profession? Was there any resistance to it or? They, they were worried, but by the time I thought I'm going to do this as a, as a, for a living, um, I'd been sort of turning up and performing in things for about what I've been doing it for about six years, you know, with the cathedral choir and everything. And then when I joined the youth theatre, I'd spent three years with them, two years with them before I thought I'm going to go for drama school. That's three years actually. And by then I'd already done plays at the rep and had been reviewed by people. And I'd been doing walk-on work for central television um, in, in, in town. And I'd been paid as a walk-on as an extra. And because they didn't have many kids who could do that, my summers were spent, you know, every week I'd spend two or three days at central doing something or other. So I, I was, my pocket money was well taken care of for about two years. And, um, when my mum saw that, she kind of thought, hang on, I, I think, you know, you can, there is, there is room for you to do this. It's not just a silly thing. And then RADA, I mean, like me, you know, getting into RADA, I was very worried about, I had an idea of it, that it would be like an Oxbridge slight yeah. sort of highfalutin academic sort of institution, which it's not. Mm. I mean, did, what was your impression of it before you got there? And then once you, once you were in, uh, before I got, I, I auditioned for three, three drama schools, Central Guildhall and, um, and RADA. And um, I, for me, I thought, well, I can't do anything else. But if, and I love doing this, I just eat and sleep it and breathe it. And if, if these are the wrong places for me, then I'll, I'll try and find somewhere else. But it was a real, it was really scary leaving home, thinking about leaving home and all that money that I didn't have. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and, and thinking I might be make, making a huge mistake. But by the time I got to the drama schools and I auditioned, the way the people spoke, they spoke in terms that I understood. It, it wasn't academic. They were talking about the speeches. They were talking about thoughts and inflections and meaning and, you know, what you want and character and all that. And I thought, oh, no, 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 I love this. I love this. So that just made sense to me. And um, when I got into RADA, I, I was worried. But the other people in my class because I do think you learn as much from your class over the three years as you do from any other teachers. They're your sort of cohort. But my class came from, I mean, they're from all over, you know, places I'd never been, you know, Liverpool, Northern Ireland and, and America, States, you know, uh, Canada. I mean, they were, they were from all over, from all levels of society. Um, people who couldn't afford to go, people who got grants, um, people who had, you know, um, uh, parents pay their fees. And it, it, we, we were just this very, very mixed bag and all ages as well. The youngest being, yeah, I think I was the youngest. I went when I was just turned 18 and the oldest was 31, I think in, in the year. 
So um, I, I worry now with in terms of, you know, taking student loans and stuff like that. I mean, like you, I was given a grant by my educational authority to, to pursue acting, you know, and we know that we're going into an insecure profession anyway. So the idea of taking on debt in order to pursue a profession that I know is insecure, that could be a stumbling block for, for many people. Do you feel that? Yeah, I do. I do. I, 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 you know, I don't believe in student fees at all, really. <laughs> I just think we should find a way around it. I think we're constantly talking about trying to get the best out of the country and the best for society and the best for the future, you know, whatever our political beliefs. But if we hamper that best by, um, with debt, um, we're kind of, we're kind of, you know, putting a ball and chain around their ankles before they set off on a run. And it, and it doesn't, it doesn't quite make sense to me. I know it makes sense to the purse, but in terms of encouraging human beings in all walks, of, from all walks of life to, to add their best to our society, I just think it's, um, it's crippling really. And also from a theatre point of view, I mean, if I'd left drama school, knowing that I had 20, 30 grand's worth of debt is not more, mm. then my, I wouldn't have taken the route into my career via theatre. I would have, because, you know, again, it's not, you're not going to earn any money there. So, But I'm so glad that I came out of drama school. I only had to support myself. I had no debt. Mm. But I was able to take jobs in touring and, uh, I mean, we'll talk about your TIE experience in a minute, but, you know, the, those type of roles in order to just support myself. And it's where I learned so much was in those early days. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think um, Rufus Norris was in uh, my year at RADA. And um, when he left, there was a group of people who left from various drama schools who got involved with um, a theatre company in North London called Arts Threshold. Mm-hmm. And it was like they had this box big box studio space which with which they could do what they wanted and so various people from various drama schools you know skilled technicians in lighting and sound and you know props building and everything just got together and put on plays and I think to myself if 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 those people had to worry about student debt that place wouldn't exist and Rufus cut his teeth as a director there um and now he's running the National Theatre there there is there is a direct line and um it's a shame that people have to worry about that and also, just by necessity, the profession tends to become a middle-class profession because in order for you to take risks as a young person, you have to rely on the bank of mum and dad a little bit. And that sort of Definitely. ipso facto makes that it's a middle-class profession. And I, I personally worry that we're losing those voices from, uh, from our profession, really. Yeah, I, I, I do the same. And, I, and that's why I think, you know, organisations like the National Youth Arts Trust and <clears throat> organisations like them try to make sure that people can afford, well, make sure that, that money isn't a barrier and talent is your only barrier when you're, when you're trying to go to, I don't know, the Royal College of Music or RADA or Central or Guild or anywhere like that. I was interested that you'd left drama school you know, you, you, again, like me, acting sort of became your focus as a young person. And I, and sort of, that's where you were, that was the route you were on. So you left drama school, you ended up at the national, but you ended up in TIE doing Shakespeare with six or seven actors and taking it to schools and yeah. teaching schools about Shakespeare when you hadn't actually learned Shakespeare in that, <laughs> in that way. I mean, how did that feel that you were suddenly passing this on to people? It, it felt, it, it was, it was a real lesson in ownership, I suppose. And I think that's what some of the arguments are about. 
when people talk about reclaiming or re-engaging or, or having going back to the way things were, you know, this kind of insecurity that speaks of um, claiming Britishness as a sort and, you know, it's for one group. Um, but for me, that, that was a, that was a real eye opener because I, I hadn't done, I'd done Shakespeare, studied Shakespeare at Rada, but I hadn't done a Shakespeare play at Rada. I'd gone through three years without doing a play. And then, and then my, um, my, my first job, my second job at drama school was, was teaching um, Shakespeare in the form and doing a potted version of Midsummer Night's Dream to sixth form students up and down the country, Northern Ireland and, you know, everywhere. Um, but we had a fantastic teacher in Bridget Panay. She taught us how to teach and the stuff she taught me has never left, never left me really. Uh, but it was a, it was a real, that, that sense of ownership going around schools and turning up. And I'm like, I dressed the way I've always dressed for the last, you know, 30 years <clears throat> um, when I was 10. Um, but, you know, ba- baseball cap trainers, jeans, you know, that's, that, that's just bomber jacket. That's just me. That's how I dress. And I'm walked into these schools up and down the country representing the National Theatre to teach them about Shakespeare. And a lot of the kids looked at me and went, wait, what? You're what you what? Because <laughs> they had no idea. They just it hadn't been shown them, you know, and that was it was a long time ago. It was the middle. It was the early 90s. Um, but I loved that. I loved that. I loved the look on their faces. I loved the the fact that I could walk in there and say, yeah, I have the right to do this. Um, and the knowledge I'd been given by Rada, loved it. But also, you're now one of our most established and lauded Shakespearean actors. Uh, and what I love about that is that, you know, Shakespeare, as we know, is an emotional connection. It's some, it's, there's, sure, there's words in there that we don't understand, mm. but no one understands them. It's not just you and me. It's not because of my education. It's like, it's a, it is an archaic language, but the emotion and the story and the characters are just, immediate for everyone and he was writing for everyone yeah yeah absolutely writing for everyone and and when people get hung up on even now hung up on the accent that was supposed to speak Shakespeare with when it wasn't the accent that was around when Shakespeare wrote I I find that funny and I find that we use a lot of um vowel sounds in our in our received pronunciation our rp our posh voice that isn't from the British Isles. <laughs> it's from Europe. <laughs> and yet we're hanging up on, oh, it's got to sound like this. And no, no, it hasn't. It hasn't at all. It's got to feel like this. That's what's more important than what it sounds like. Um, but it was uh, once once the, the first couple of plays I did broke the kind of unlocked Shakespeare, if you like. And I think it is a bit of a conundrum and you have to unlock it. Um, once they unlocked it and I got into it, I I found it, you know, some of the, some of the words, some of the sentences he's written, people have four or five different interpretations of the same speech. I mean, and they're all valid. I just think it's, it's, it's amazing that you can do that and um, transfer that to life. People sometimes don't know what they mean till they open their mouth. And even after they've finished speaking, there's a moment where they're thinking, I don't know if I've said the right thing. And then you move on. And I did a, I'm going to stop in a sec with this point, but I did a film with a director who, only did ever, he did like two or three takes and that was it. Three maximum, normally. And I, I asked him one day, because I was already interested in directing, why are you doing only, you know, so few takes? And he said, I want to capture the moment before a person starts speaking when they say, when they're thinking, how do I put this? And then I want to capture the moment after they're finished speaking when they say, did I say the right thing? 
And those are the two most important moments. He said, when they're in the middle of their uh, sentences or their speak, you don't want the camera on them. You put the camera on the other person because they're the one who's changing. And I, and I sat there, I thought, God, that's brilliant. And we chatted about acting and directing a lot. It was the late, great Mike Nichols. Um, but that I thought I thought that was really important because that's uh, and you can see that in his work so much. I mean, yeah, you, you yeah. really see directors who love acting. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. the thing. But let's go to so Rosalind. I mean, is it right that when you first auditioned, you auditioned for Orlando? <laughs> when I yeah, that's true. Um, Declan contacted me. I was doing Kiss of the Spider Woman in Coventry, and Declan contacted me and he said, uh, you know, via my agent, do you want to come in and read for Rosalind in this all-male version of uh, As You Like It. My first response, you know, was just to say, no, thank you. You know, humbly, because I'd heard of who he was. Not properly, but I'd heard the director. And I just went, I, I don't think I want to do that kind of production, you know, now. Um, it was 90, what, 91, 92? I just thought, I don't want to play it. I've, I just had in mind a sort of panto version of the play. And I just thought, I don't, I don't want to do that. And then he contacted me and said, do you want to read for Orlando? And I went, yeah, yeah, okay. So I came down to read for Orlando and I read. Um, and I just sat and chatted to Declan about the play, about perception, about love, about sexless human love, about, you know, devotion to um, person, um, fear um, and commitment. And then by the time I was going up, back up on the train to Coventry to do another performance, I thought, oh my God, if he hasn't got a Rosalind, I want to do it. <laughs> so I contacted him and said, can I, if you haven't got a Rosalind, can I be considered? And I think by then he thought, hmm. So he asked me to come down again to uh, audition for Rosalind, which I happily did. Um, and I read for her and uh, in the end, yeah, got the part. And the idea of it being an all male production, um, of course, that's how Shakespeare would have, you know, it would have been all male, wouldn't it? Because mm. women weren't allowed on stage. Mm. But it's also a really modern take on relationships and sex as well. It's quite, mm -hmm. it, what was wonderful about it was you saw something that was very, very traditional in one sense and really revolutionary and sort of anarchic in another. Yeah, it, it, see, it seems as though the, the taboos that we've got around um, love and gender uh, be, you know, in Shakespeare's day and before then, there was no taboo. And then we've sort of inserted this taboo in human relationships um, since then. And now we're sort of unpicking the taboo that we've, <laughs> that we've spent a long time putting in place. But it wasn't there before. Um, so, yes, there's a justification that Shakespeare, that, that was the way Shakespeare would have done it. But beyond that, I, I, I think it's interesting to, to look at a play that deals with... Um, perception and character and selfless love with a single sex um, cast, every generation that should be done just to sort of remind us what that means and what he wrote about. You're a man playing a woman who disguises herself as a man to woo a man. And then at the end reveals him, herself as a woman. So the, the levels of that are just so brilliant and wonderful to the point where you think, in the end, as the audience member, you think none of this matters. It's just yeah. love. It's love yeah. between two people. Yeah, that's that's what was that's what was great about it is that there was a point. The, the toughest point for me was the beginning of the play when I was in a dress and I was um, man being woman, or or in a sense not being male but trying to just be androgynous in a dress. Um, 
that felt uh, odd because I I tried very much and I was I was so aware of parody and I didn't want to do that or get into that at all. None of us did, um, and thankfully we avoided it. But for me, when I when I was at the beginning in the dress and surrounded by all the guys and on the command and the status and the power, I, I found that I it was it felt. Uh, I felt really constricted, which is probably what Rosalind feels as well, actually. And then getting into the forest and try, putting on the trousers and the waistcoat and everything in the hat, I do like, okay, right, now I can relax and just play it, um, which is the effect of, of this single sex cast on the play. I've worked with Declan a couple of times myself, and he's it's a really great rehearsal room, isn't it? I mean, there's lots of games. There's lots of stuff that I... Before I became an actor, I always thought that actors did, which was sort of play games. They did lots of role play, lots of dancing and singing and stuff like that. And I always thought, oh, God, that's acting. I want to be Marlon Brando. But actually, when I did it with Declan, I suddenly see it was all about freeing myself up physically, mentally, getting rid of any sort of... uh, you know, uh, insecurity in myself, really sort of making myself silly in a way in order mm. to get to a truth. Did you have lots of that on yours? We we had loads of that on ours. And I, I worked with Declan after that. I worked with him on um, Sweeney Todd at the National Theatre. Mm-hmm. And then again in the second As You Like It that we did. Um, and he did lots of that. He breaks down your misconceptions. He frees you up um, and gets you to use your imagination and... Like um, some of the best directors I've worked with, they never tell you what to do. They will tell you what not to do and then leave the rest to you. Um, but And some will tell you what to think, but Declan will tell you, just like Peter Brook really, will tell you what not to think. He'll look and go, hmm, I think you're thinking this and maybe it's not that. Mm-hmm. And then you go, okay, what is it then? And he's like, mm, try it again. <laughs> and he just yeah. leaves you to, to, to sort of find it in yourself. And it's a, it's a brilliant process. A, a lot of actors have come through a rehearsal process with Declan. Um, and had, you know, done performances where they didn't know that what they did was was inside them. They didn't know it was possible. I think that's really true. I think he really pushes you out of your comfort zone, which is wonderful. I mean, I think that's, I worked with him twice. And the second time I worked with him, I really, I, I wanted that from him. I wanted him to make me braver and discover things that I didn't know I was capable of. I mean, he talks about the tango that you did in rehearsal, that was quite important. Was that something that came naturally to you? I mean, I, 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 as someone who might have salsed with you in the past, <laughs> what's your tango like? Oh, mate, I can't dance a tango. I just can't. I, 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 don't, I don't know how to. There's a, like a, there's a sort of marking time step you do with a tango that you do as a basic step with your partner. I can't do that at all. Um, so I, I did what was choreographed for us to do um and it was very intricate and very you know you couldn't tell whether i was leading or patrick toomey or scott andy was leading my two orlandos and um it, it was it was very intricate and De- declan was saying it, that it's you can't tell he loved he loved the tango because it was a play between partners you couldn't tell where the power lay and sometimes the female partner in in the grouping would allow herself to be led. And then at other times you couldn't tell who was actually doing the leading. And um, he, he liked that direct eye contact and all of that. There's also that sense, the thing that he does as well. And I think this is what great act, uh, directors do is he creates a company, doesn't he? So he creates a group of actors mm. that you can be brave with 
you have to be, you, you know, he, he, there's lots of trust games and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not just because of uh, opening up the text and stuff like that, but because you're going to be on the road for quite a long time. So there's things like he creates a company that can sort of be with each other and, and grow. Yeah, and that, and that you've got to um, play ball together because you get to this point um, on you get to this point in the in the job on the tour where you can you almost feel like you're improvising the Shakespeare between you. It's so locked in, and the 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 pretense goes as long as he doesn't see you acting, as long as he believes it, then the audience will believe it, and the the audience is uh, they're so used to seeing us pretend that when they think that you're not pretending, when they think, oh my God, what just happened? That, that's when you've got them. So you have to put yourself in a position where you can do that almost every night and make it look like it just happened to you for fresh. And, and you've got to be around people you can trust if, that, if you're doing something like that. But also with Cheek by Jow, which is his company, I mean, with Actually Like It, you opened your show in Farnham <laughs> and your second performance was in Rio. <laughs> so, and then you... Uh, and then you tour the world, don't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you tour the world, Those you tour, days, certainly man. tour the UK. Yeah, we toured the world. I mean, I remember, I remember thinking, who drew up this, this list? Because we'd be in Carlisle, then we'd be in Southampton, and then we'd be in Sunderland. And I was thinking, surely you can keep the North, you know, together for a while. But no, you were all over the place. All I mean, how do place. you, well, did the audience... Did the audience react differently in different uh, parts of the world and parts of the country to you? Oh yeah, completely, completely. There were it was, it, it was to as you like it. Oh, my God, the 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 audience reaction to these guys coming coming out, four of them in dresses, um, and uh, and doing this play. It was a yeah, it was really different. Japan was very very different. Japan was silent, and my lack of knowledge at the time when we were going I only realized it when we got there and started performing but I thought no they've got a long tradition of this they've got a long tradition of actors doing this and and the stillness that was in the play and the silence the the Japanese audience I remember both for as you like it and for Hamlet would sit and um cross-legged and not move no fidgeting no coughing no they would there was absolute concentrated silence um and on the other end of the scale, I remember some like schools audiences or even performing in America who they were so ready to laugh, so ready to be vocal. You know, if they found, if they recognized the, the sentence and knew what you meant, they wanted to sort of vocalize and let you know. But um, it was the absolute opposite in Japan. And then in Russia, um, people made noises. There was a low hubbub in, in, in the audience. But I remember coming off stage and one actor saying to me, very strong performance, very good, very good. I like uh, in this act, in this scene, someone mentions your father and you look up and you look slightly to the left. It's a wonderful moment. And then near the end of the play, you mention your father again and you do the same thing. You look up and you look slightly to the left and you find him in that same point in your mind. And I just, I was just nodding going, yeah, yeah, that, I really thought about that. Yeah, that was really, <laughs> that was done on purpose. <laughs> and I came away going, God, the Moscow State Theatre, my God. <laughs> That is fantastic. And then you kept you kept it in from then on. I kept it in from then on. And then in, in interviews, I'd say, well, of course, when I think of my father, I, I look up and slightly to the left. Because that's 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 the part of my memory that he occupies. <laughs> but um, the, the quality of watching it was it was amazing. It changed all over the world. But what do you learn about 
the how you change what I love about Shakespeare, particularly in long runs, is I'm constantly learning new things in the language, in the character. It's always, you know, you're never just coasting it. Lines are minted afresh, new thoughts are coming to you. Did yeah. you find that uh, even more so being on tour, performing in different audiences? Did it teach you different things all the time about the character? Yeah, yeah, because every every theatre has, you can't enter from exactly the same place in every theatre. So you're constantly adapting. So the play is kind of, you know, you're on the balls of your feet with the play that you think you know so well every time you go to a new venue. But the other thing is Declan. Declan, when, and I'm sure you found this, that when you've got a scene locked and you feel like you know what you're doing in it, that's, (laughs) it's true, isn't it? That's the moment that he will turn up, he'll watch it, he'll give you notes and he'll say, "Mm, I think I want you to go this way around the table. I think you should go, you should leave that way and you should come on from the other side. And you think, why? Why are you doing that? The scene works perfectly. But it's because we knew what we were doing and it was unsurprising and he wanted to surprise us again. And yeah. I remember receiving notes from him, uh, I think a, a, a day, like two performances before a show closed, he came in and gave notes. Yeah, I did too. Go. Yeah, yeah, I did. I Brilliant. remember the, the night before our last night, he came in and gave me a couple of notes and I was like, what? It was great. It kept yeah. me on my toes. It was wonderful. Yeah, How, yeah. How did Rosalind change for you in the time? I mean, because I know you did it mm. twice. So when they asked you to come back for the second time, yeah. did you did you have any, did you have to think about that for a long time or did you just jump on? I just jumped on, you know, two days. I just went, yeah, let's do it. I, um, we thought about when, because I'd put my, I'd, I'd, I think it was 60 degrees of separation um, was around that time. Mm-hmm. And, um, in, in, when he said we want to do it again and I thought, how are we going? I did think, how are we going to get the same magic back? You know, cause it was a successful show. It worked. I thought, Oh God, are we going to do it again? It's not going to work. Um, but no, he was, he was very positive about it. Said, oh, we really want to do it. And I thought, no, let, 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 let's do it. And then I just got to understand her even more. Rosalind, she's an amazing character, amazing character. How did she change yeah. in that time for you? Well, <clears throat> I, I wasn't so scared. Um, second time around. And um, I was, therefore, I think I was freer. I used to think, going back to your, you know, where where you, where I came from, youth theatre and <clears throat> the position in society, entering this middle class profession, and the money, and I haven't read all the books. I didn't know the plays. That I couldn't deconstruct Ibsen. I didn't. I mean, I had no clue. Um, it was just a love for the job. There's there was always something that followed me that made me try a little too hard in things that I was doing because um, I, I tended to feel like I had to earn my place on the stage. Um, and thinking back on it now, I see it. And I think it was m- as much to do with a feeling of um, a lack of importance, a lack of ownership for me in in the profession and with Shakespeare. But also when I looked around, I didn't really see anybody like me doing what I was doing, you know, or at least they weren't championed in the way that they should have been. So you felt like you were kind of slightly isolated a little bit. And, uh, and I, I wanted to sort of prove something because you didn't have a cushion to lie on, of security to lie on to say, actually, this is fine. Mm-hmm. So the second time round, I was much more relaxed and um, enjoyed it much more. And I think I was better as well. We'll be back with more chat after this. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. Obviously, we think of words like enjoyment, meaning you're having fun. And of course, you are having fun. But were you able to mine the the, the darker sides of her as well, the sort of heartbroken sides, the sort of insecurity, the relationships with her father and stuff like that? I yeah, mean, I, 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 I loved that. And I, you know, you see a lot of productions where, well, I have, where the lines where she says, I shall play the fool with him and, you know, mock him and pretend to be something else with him. And um, we came to that scene in rehearsals and, you know, I did that and then we carried on and we carried on with the play and it, it just, it wasn't working for me. It just wasn't working. And I remember pulling Declan to one side and after rehearsal and saying, she's angry. She's really, really angry. I mean, deeply angry with him, maybe for something he hasn't done, but she's just, all of this play, these scenes where she's pretending to be Rosalind, they just... If it's done as a sort of play, it doesn't work. There's something wrong. And um, Declan went away and thought about it for a while. And we came back into rehearsal one day and he said, I know why she's angry. And I went, oh God, why? Yeah, big revelation. Why? And he said, it's because he doesn't see her. He sees what he wants her to be. And I thought that was genius. And then we did this moment where I reveal myself and go, hello, it's me. And I tell you, Forrester, you know, what time o'clock is it? And he goes, aha. Uh-huh. And then I turn around and take my hat off and say, it's me. And he doesn't know who I am. Mm. I go to hug him and he pushes me back. Like this guy in the forest has tried to <laughs> give him a hug. He's pushing me, what are you doing, mate? And um, at that moment, she turns and says, I'll teach you what time. And every, every instance she gives is, well, then there's no true lover in the forest. Otherwise she's in pain and she doesn't want to be without him, but every time he turns up, she's punishing him for not understanding what a real, what she is really like, what a real woman is like, if you like. Um, she's schooling him, isn't she? She's schooling him. She's yeah. schooling him and he has no idea. And uh, I, <laughs> at that point, I thought Shakespeare is a genius. Mm. 
really is. And I remember that so well in the production that it was completely different than I'd seen it before because it's a play I'd done and I'd seen it. There's, there's always a frivolity around that and a mm. sort of jokiness around it. And suddenly there was a real danger to to that sequence in, in, in your production. We got to this point, I mean, she's been abandoned by her uh, dad. Then she's been thrown out by her uncle after being kept as a plaything for for her cousin. Mm-hmm. And then the one person that she saw like herself, because then suddenly there's an affinity. She sees um, Orlando, who's been cast aside and has nothing. And in our production, I took off a chain and gave it to him and had to put it over his head. And Declan said, it's not, it is not the, me- we're not describing the meeting of, you know, the handsome wrestler who's full of himself and thinks he's great. And the wonderful princess who's very witty and in charge. We're seeing the meeting of two people, two souls who've been passed over, who've been trodden on, who feel that they're worthless and feel like they're not worth loving. Mm-hmm. And they've fallen in love with each other. And that's what we're seeing. So when she meets him in the forest and he's written all these poems on the trees, she thinks, oh my God, he loves me too. And when she meets him and he doesn't see her, that's, that's heartbreaking. So within all the love scenes where she's say, he's saying, but will my Rosalind do thus? Will my Rosalind be like this? And she's saying, I tell you, she will do as I do. Really important you understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, did when you were on tour in all these different places, and I don't want you to mention any countries here, but were you ever received with any animosity for what you were doing with the, uh, with an all male cast or the way that you know sexuality was ex- explored in the in the piece? Um, not any, not animosity, but you could feel the tension. Um, and it was always at the point where I kissed Orlando at the end. You could feel the audience just either do a little intake of breath or, I mean, it's hard to imagine that, but there's like a little like this. And some people just looked down. I remember looking up and seeing a whole audience looking down at their program, suddenly interested in, you know, who, who'd written the music. <laughs> <laughs> um, we played in one country, I think, was it a week or two weeks after the law against homosexuality had been repealed? We... Um, and, it, and when we kissed then, there was a si- dead silence. And then suddenly the whole place erupted into rounding of applause. People stood up and stamped their feet and cheered. And we hadn't even finished the play yet. Um, so there, was, there were all sorts of reactions. I remember in New York when we did it first time round, um, I think everyone who came and saw us afterwards and hung out with us just assumed the whole company was gay. So... I remember talking to somebody and he was just, he just assumed that I was gay. And when I said, Oh no, I'm not, I'm, you know, just there's, I think there's about three members of the cast who are either pan or gay. The rest of us are all, you know, sort of straight. And um, he, I remember this reaction, this guy went, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I don't believe you. Like, I don't believe you. And I went, well, no, but no, but it's true. And he was going, yeah, of course. And I suppose you've all got girlfriends. And I went, well, yeah, I have. And he went, yeah, right. <laughs> so that's that's a, it's funny how what people want you to be, what they see in the play, and what they therefore, you know, say you are now this for me, and and uh, yeah, it was it was very interesting. And was it difficult coming back the second time for you? As the, you know, you I think it was you and two other actors were constant from the first production to the second. How difficult yeah. is it for you? Because <laughs> I've been in both situations mm. where you you are t- somebody is taking over, a new actor is coming in to play a part that you know so well, and you've 
been there with another actor for a year or whatever. How difficult is it for you not to just say, look, if you stand over there, it's going to be much better. Or if you just say it like this, honestly, you'll get a gag if you do that. I mean, did you have time to let the new cast uh, explore it in their own way? Yeah, um, we had another six-week rehearsal process. So it wasn't like, you know, we've got two weeks and you move on to square number this and square number that, you know, it, it wasn't at all, but it was remarkable how with complete freedom, we got the, to the same kind of production. Mm-hmm. Other actors made different choices. Uh, they went different directions, they did different things, but the essence of what um, Declan believed was possible with the scene was, was once again um, found. And I... Patrick Toomey um, played Orlando the first time around, and then it was Scott Handy the second time around. And both actors with me found, you know, it found the same feeling with Orlando and Rosalind, but it was just expressed in very, very different ways. The director, Josie Rourke, who uh, ran the Dunbar for a long time, who's a fantastic director, she said, seeing your performance changed her life. She said, I realised there was such a thing as a transcendent performance. Wow. I mean, when you were doing the show, particularly in the second, when you knew the show was a success, so you've come back and you did it, were you aware of yourself as, you know, that people were coming to see something special? And does that add an extra pressure to you when people are coming and going, we know we're going to have a good night tonight? Is there, is there a different dynamic between you and the audience when you're in a success? In, um, like a lot of actors, you're, you're doing something and then you hear that people are saying it's a success and then you hear that it's selling out and then you hear that the people are queuing at stage door for returns and you, you sort of hear about it, but it's still the same show. And you still want to get it right. And, and, you know, so many of us have been in shows where we think, this is fantastic. <laughs> Why isn't anybody coming? <laughs> Why isn't anybody coming? What's wrong with them? You know, and, and it's the same feeling. You're on stage, you're doing your job, you're working hard. But I don't know, that alchemy of whether it works or not is just, is just sort of beyond you. Um, I've, I, did, I have found now, lately, that it's weird being re- regarded, if you like, as a sort of Shakespeare actor when Shakespeare was my greatest weakness when I was at drama school. I didn't, didn't know what to, what? Bard? Bard who? What? Build the quill. I just, I, I couldn't, you know, make friends with it. And then because I sort of attended to that weakness uh, monthly and tried and tried and tried, it's become something else. My experiments with my weakness has become what I'm known for. <laughs> yeah. That's so great though. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it, it's uh yeah it's it's a it's a good thing and so when if now I take on board a production and I'm sure you feel the same thing because you have a name that goes with the the thing there are loads of actors who are out there loads fantastic that you know you and I will learn from if we ever got the chance to work to them but then they're not doing going from job to job to job or they're not you know they're having to take other work in order to put food on the table and the, and then act but if you or I ever got the chance to work with them my God they're brilliant mm. but with people like us who've done a bit of TV or done some film. Your, your, your name carries a thing that does add a bit of a pressure to you, I think. When you know people are coming to watch you work, you sort of think, actually, I've got to live up to whatever idea it is that people <laughs> may have of what they're going to get here. Do you still, do you have imposter syndrome though? I mean, I, I, I still at times, I mean, I don't so much in the theatre now, but it's when I was doing Shakespeare or, or you know, classical drama in some way, or sometimes I can be on an American film set and I think, 
they've got me mixed up with someone else. I don't, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I do have moments. Obviously, as I get older, they're less and less. But did you have that growing when you started out that you sort of you hadn't earned your place there? I mean, particularly from an educational point of view. When I was starting out, apart from not really seeing, hearing people like me, seeing people like me around that much, you're always one or two members of the company that looked like you or sounded like you. Um, it, it was after I'd managed to keep a career going in the middle bit, if you like, then I got the imposter syndrome because then I thought, I'm, oh, I'm supposed to be better than this. I'm supposed to be more than this. I'm supposed to be, you know, blah, blah, blah. At the very beginning, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to know shit. So it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. But later on, it did, it did start to creep in with a, a sense that I, I don't really know what I'm doing here because I'm one of those people who just works off instinct. Yes. Yeah, so an instinct can take us so far, can't it? I mean, I think, you know, part of the podcast for me is talking about what we need as actors from mm. a technique point of view, because obviously in a theater and long running uh, shows, you need some technique to get you through. You need stamina. You're doing eight shows a week. You're, you know, you're telling the same story every night. Mm. Needs, it's not cheating to have a technique, is it? No, no, it's not at all. But, and and strangely, I think years ago, when before when audiences saw pure technique, they applauded it. They applauded that sound in the voice. They applauded the stance and the position of the diaphragm. They applauded it. But now people go, well, I can see you acting at me, and so our techniques have to shift. Um, and I think it's I think it's harder now because mm. we're so used to observing people on cameras and zooms on TV and so on that to convince people that what you're doing is real is much harder than it would have been years ago, I think. I'm sure a lot of older actors will just slap me down for that, but <laughs> that's what also, I think. I also think, you know, not to sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but when people come to the theatre, they slightly don't know they're in the room with real people. So, you know, I mean, yeah. we all, you know, we all have the mobile phone stuff, people checking their phones or even mm. answering their phones sometimes. Mm. But they don't realise that you're real and you're standing in front of them. Yeah, and and that you, you know the, the people on stage can hear you um, when you're chatting. Oh, do you want this bit? Oh, this bit's good. You know, and they're getting in the bag with the sweets. They just don't understand. And then some some do, and that, that's brilliant. But uh, no, they think it's a glorified sort of cinema screen in three D. I I love the story of as you like it when you were in Romania when the truck with the set and the costume. Can you tell us that? <laughs> It was, we, you know, the, the set was being, you know, traveling by truck and everything. And um, <clears throat> so we're, we're in, we're performing in, uh, in, in Romania. I think it's Krajowa, Krajowa we're in. And the costumes and the set and the instruments and everything, the, the trucks containing all of that can't get across the border. So they're delayed. I think they're held up for 24 hours. So we're supposed to open in this theatre and we know the trucks and the stuff isn't, aren't going to be there. So we ask, I think there's a local drama society, we ask, you know, the band, we, we ask everybody to help out and the, the, everyone comes and it's brilliant. They all bring their instruments and flutes and trombones and everything. And we've, we've got to, so that was me on the microphone, we've got to make up uh, the costumes we would be in from our own clothes. So we think, right, what are we going to do? Oh, I've got boots here. I'm going to tie a little thing. Have you got a sash? Have you got a bit of curtain pole? You know, we just made it up. And uh, 
we came out and started to do the play and it was, it was weird. And I think I had this, um, long sleeve t-shirt that I re- pulled right down, you know, and tried to make into a sort of mini skirt type feel. And I wore some shorts or trousers or something in that, you know, just, just trying to put it all together. And we did the show, all of us, all the guys doing the show. And then, uh, at the end, it, it went well. They went with us. You know, we did the, 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 um, we had the band, we had the tango, we did everything. And we had a reception afterwards. And, um, I remember one official approached Declan, our director, and he said, um, so tomorrow you will have the costumes. And Declan says, yes, yes, tomorrow we'll have the costumes. And, and tomorrow you will have the instruments and the props and things. Said, yes, you will have all the instruments and all of that. So we'll do a proper show tomorrow. And he said, yes, yes, yes. And tomorrow you will also have the women. <laughs> and Declan looked at him, what? And this guy absolutely thought that the men in the company had cobbled together this show because all the girls were stuck at the border. I thought, How could the women be stuck at the border? The women, the women all arrive tomorrow. It's like they're all in a different truck. Yeah. We, we, stuck, we stuck the women in with the set. Yeah. Oh yeah, the instruments and the women will come tomorrow. They're in, they're in the same cases. It just, the mind boggles really. Um, I love that. <laughs> But you, you know, when you're before, when you're doing something like Henry V or Hamlet, and you're preparing character and stuff, do you go through the same process when you're doing something like Company? When you're playing um, in musical theatre, like when you're playing Robert in Company, is it the same process that you go through for those two mediums? Yeah, I still, I still. Um start as I've always started. I, I I read the play and then I will read the play as if my character wasn't there, which sounds like a weird thing to do, but I sort of read it and try to skip their lines, but take from their lines elements of what I know is going to happen in the plot. And by the, by the time I'm halfway through coming towards the end, there's, I get a sense of something that's missing from the play. I get this real sense of, hang on, there's no, there's no humor. There's no humor. The play is the play is now dark and tragic, and there's no humor. And I also go find things like, oh, there's no there's there's no reference to this. That that element is missing, and so I write these things down, along with writing down everything that um, other characters say about the character and what the character says about themselves. And then I have this list of paragraphs and sentences full of nouns, full of uh, adjectives, and in a way that that is therefore my job description because if if I serve the play properly, then all of those things will be answered. So, you know, like you've got to make what people say about you true or could possibly be true and find it in yourself to do that. So I still start with that same kind of process, be it music or a play or Shakespeare and, um, and, and, you know, just, just sort of go from there. And what about backstory? Do you use backstory a lot? Um, the, it's weird that the, the more at sea I am with a character, the more I will really dig into backstory and I'll even get into what I'm, you know, actions and physical actions on lines and what, you know, exactly what I'm doing because I'm lost and don't know. But then there are other times when I've read speeches that my character is supposed to say, and I've just read it and understood it. And I've had a tear in my eye and thought, God, this is brilliant. And then I don't do anything. I sort of leave myself alone because I've already responded. Mm. So I kind of leave myself alone for those. Um, and there's one coming up that I'm not allowed to talk about yet, um, but th- that I'm now starting to think, oh God, yeah, here we go. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm starting that same process of loosely thinking, well, where, where is this person from? Where, what, what, what's brought them to this point? And, and so on. 
Yeah, because I think you're right. Sometimes I can read a script and it just it's right at my fingertips for some reason. I know it. I'm there. Other times there's something about the character I like, but I'm struggling. And then I will do things like I love that uh, of reading the play without your character in it and finding it that way. I also sometimes do units and actions where I will separate mm. a little bit yeah. and I will give one action. And I will say one word about what that sums up for me. And it just mm. cracks it open in some way. So I'll play games with myself or I'll play different types of music, different types of energies as I'm reading something and see what that yeah. brings for me yeah. and stuff like that. I, that. I find, sorry, but I, <clears throat> it, for, for me, it's always the the candle work, actually. I like. I, I've what's always, that? I've always done it. Um you know, dark room on my own, hopefully when no one else is in the house, sat on the floor with the script and a candle and um, just paused over sentences, repeated them to myself, um, tried to find out how how you speak the words to the audience, but even as you think of the words, you know, the words speak to you. So you say them and they kind of work on you, don't they? That's why you can read a poem and it makes you cry or you can, whatever. It's, it, it, it works on you. And I think when I've got no one else around and things are switched off and it's dark and I can just about see the text, that's the, that's the time when it works on me best. But if you're in a long, that, that's because that's all the work you do to get in and whilst you're doing it. But what I loved about working with Declan, as we spoke about before, is mm. sometimes that well will have run dry for me over a long period mm. and I need to revisit it. And he gives me the chance to revisit it and remint it. Mm. Whereas some directors are so locked into uh, what they've put up on stage that you can't move <laughs> and you can feel very, very restricted. Whereas he still wants to reinvent it. And I think that's very important, whether the director wants you to do it or not. For, for yeah. Be able to do it, it yeah if he if you're left alone enough then it, as as the run changes it changes for you and it can keep changing which i i relish really i hate the idea of working with someone who's going to say you stand there now now you move over there now you move over there i it would kill me me too but in television and film it's a very different discipline for us isn't it a mm. You're usually not going to tell your story chronologically. No. You'll be very lucky if you get rehearsal. You'll be very lucky if you meet the other actor before the scene when you're supposed mm -hmm. to be doing it, you know. So how do you prep for a role on TV or film which is different to uh, theatre? God, if that, that <clears throat> well, I, I, have to, I have to know what, what I mean and why. That's, that's all I have to... No. And then I can, I can hang on to that meaning wherever they want to put me. You know, we think you sit down here. We think you walk through the door. Actually, you don't walk in yet. You sit from outside and then you lean through the window and, you know, whatever they want to do, I can still find ways to mean what I'm supposed to mean for the reasons that I already have that make sense in the script. My problem is when it doesn't make sense in the script or the script isn't finished. You don't know those things where the script hasn't been finished yet. And you're there going, I don't, what am I, what, why? Well, we think that the, and you just, what, what am I doing? Yeah, yeah. And then you feel like a warm puppet. And um, yeah. How, how are you a confrontation around those things? I'm one of those actors who really wants a happy set. I really want a calm, easygoing set. I don't want any tensions or anything like that. And so if I have a question to ask, I'll ask it 
in the most expedient way possible and get it out of the way and not hold anything up. And if I haven't got the answer to it, then I'll make one up for myself and throw that at the screen rather than be empty. I, I, I don't, I don't like people who want to hold stuff up and make it all about them and have a little tantrum or whatever. I haven't got time for it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the thing that will get my back up is when people just start to really carve out time and, and get selfish. I think if there's a lesson I've learned is that you're not going to get it on the day. So if you see it in the script uh, and it's troubling you, address it early. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, I will, I will phone up a writer or a director or a producer and I say, look, this scene we're doing next week or the week after, Yeah, it's not making sense to me. I don't, if I have that luxury of having knowing what mm-hmm, I'm doing mm-hmm. next week and I will try and really get my voice heard as well yeah. as I can, because yeah. once I'm on that set and there's people there and everyone's yeah. putting in their props out and lighting, doing their lighting and stuff, I know that I'm not going to have what it takes to take people on. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. But then, you know, you're such a, such a brilliant, as I said before, such a brilliant leader in terms of production director, you know, you, you know, you know, the machine, you know, and, um, but I, there's so many actors that I've met who will get on set and go, look, I've got a real problem with this. And can we, can we just stop for a second? I've got a real problem with this line. What, why am I? And the, you know, the cameras are, were rolling and I just yeah. think, no, not now. Too late, mm-hmm. mate. Too late. Yeah. yeah. Too late. And also what you're doing is you're eating into time, which we need to create. So yeah. let's do it. Let's do it before we arrive on the set and go for it. Then, And that's a luxury because sometimes you don't. Sometimes, no. you know, I'll be, I've been quite often been given the pages I'm doing that day in the makeup trade. <laughs> it's not ideal, but I've, it's happened to me. Not ideal at all. How do you deal with the great thing that we have to deal with, which is rejection and people saying no and the disappointment, I mean, you know, as we obviously, as we get established actors, we know that maybe if something says no, there'll be someone saying yes to another role. But as a younger actor, when things might, doors might've closed on you, how did you deal with that? I, that's a tough one because um, I still, still now, I thought I dealt with it before, but I still now, when I don't get or get rejected from something that I really want, the effect is still the same. Um, even now. And I think some people might think, oh, well, if you get to a certain point, blah, 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 you don't have that anymore. And actually you do, because you can still really want things that are coming up and just not get a, a, a crack at that, you know, a chance at that. I, I, I have to, for me, uh, having a hobby is the best for me. I, I, I go off and I, I love my, um, my form of exercise is martial arts. So I love doing that. And it's got a progression to it and a repetition to it. And, a you know, within our class, it's got a respect system to it. And you, you engage in tasks that you carry out again and again and again, and you learn all these new little skills as well. And it's got almost nothing to do with the acting profession because it's not someone's choice as to whether you should get that grade or get that belt. It's just, if you've done the work and you can break that block or you can do that move, you get the belt. It's not like, Oh, I liked him in that. I think he might, <laughs> it's <laughs> nothing to do with it. And so it's, it's a kind of, it's a respite really, I find. Right. Um, but in the profession, I still, still to this day, have to take myself away and just go give myself a talking to and go, come on, mate. It's all right. But you still take it personally. I mean, if you know, do you, I mean, I used to take it so personally. 
I, I don't take it completely personally, but I'd be lying if I didn't say a little bit, a little bit of it went in. And um, after a year, two, three, four years of rejections, um, you get things you want, but actually you spend more time being rejected from the other things that you wanted than you do get getting the things you want. And even when people look at you, me, whatever people they think that will work all the time, even if we're getting jobs, there are many, 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 many more jobs that we are trying for that we are getting rejected from. But how are you, how are you at saying no as, as that's, I remember the first, I remember the first job that I got offered and I said, no, I don't want to do that. It was mm. just ridiculous that I had the ability to say no to something. And mm. even now I find it, I, I find it hard to turn stuff down. What are you like with that? I, I don't find it that hard to turn stuff down right. because I, I, there's, there's jobs which are, you know, you just don't fancy and, you know, Okay, it's a tricky no to say, but there are other jobs where you know someone is just giving you this because you're actually doing them a favor. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, there, yeah. There, there's those jobs. And I do feel a lot of actors, whether, whether they've trained or not, whether they've been working for years or not, they can take away their own worth and say that I should just be grateful for a job. And actually, you're not a competition winner. Do you know what I mean? You, yeah. you've, you've practiced this thing. You know this thing. You've either trained at drama school for it or you've read and studied and practiced and studied and studied and studied. And, and there's a wealth of ability to what you, um, you, you can do. And you need to honor that sometimes. It's not big headed of you to look at a script and think, if I do these, these two scenes for you, five lines a piece, no, I'm not benefiting. I'm not going to learn anything as an actor. It's just going to make you feel better about that particular part. And so I'm going to say no. Yeah. I, I, yes, I get that. I mean, more, I, more, I mean, I roll that. I think, well, I'd like to do this, but I need to spend some time with the family. I need to sort of yeah, not that. do it. that. It's those no's that I, I find quite really still really hard saying no to a job that actually I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's hard. But then you're, you're kind of, I mean, we, I, in those moments, I really have to tell myself that I'm saying yes to something that I is more important. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, you're saying yes to that. that there are, there are, I think back now over the period I've spent in, I kind of haven't left Britain. There's been a, you know, a big push of actors leaving Britain, not just for racial reasons or whatever, any politics like that, but just there's always the, the, the swing. And I've done a bit and come home, a bit like yourself. Um, and I've always come home and I can always, I can look back over my kids' lives now. They're 19 and 16. And I, and I, and I think, no, actually I've, I've been about, I've been yeah. about, man, and that, that's just precious. Yeah, that's great. But that's just, you know, that's me. Some other actor might think, actually, it's fine. I can go away for two years. I can go away for, it, they might do that. And that's fine. That's fine too. But um, in my I, mind, in my I world, think sometimes as an actor, particularly with an actor of profile, there are a lot of people in your ear that can talk to you and you have to be very careful about what's your voice rather than the voice that's being told from yeah, around you really. Definitely. Because, you know, that idea of this would be good for you to do this. You think, well, I've better listen to my in, inner clock yeah. really. I got, I got, I got, I've developed over time a really good sense of what I know will benefit me as an actor. And sometimes I'll go away and do something that people would think was relatively small, I suppose, if that can can be said about any job. But just because I know what's here is going to be fantastic and I'm going to be better after I do this job than I was before, Mm -hmm. I, I, I relish those ones. And what about critics? What about the, when you, uh, do you read reviews? Do you, do you listen to them? 
I read all of them, really. Um, I'm very good at not counting what people say if they're just if it's just based on bullshit. Right. And there's a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of critics writing reviews who just want to tell you how clever they are, and loads of them. Um, but I have some really good notes have come from critics. <laughs> critics beware. Um, there are some people who spend all their time going to the theatre and analysing productions, and that's their training, and they take it very seriously. And when you do something, they they pull apart what you've done and what you've added and what they know of the show. And I've read some critics and thought, actually, God, you're flipping right, actually. And I've changed, not physically changed things director-wise, but I've changed an approach to certain scenes simply because I've thought, you know what, you're right, I missed something there. Mm, I've done that. Yeah, brilliant. See, I suppose that's there's a certain bravery in that. But I do encounter people. a lot of people who go, I don't read anything at all, ever. And I think, okay, yeah, fine. That's I've done it where I've been in a production and something is niggling at me and I don't know what it is. Mm. And I've read a review and they've pinpointed it in a way and I've gone, yes, that was it. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, it's quite rare, I have to say. Mm. <laughs> I'm not saying I do it every time, but I, I have to admit no. that I have been uh, uh, thankful to those reviews at times. Mm. And, you know, as I said before, you're now one of our great, most established actors. Your work is always sort of, you know, great. The choices are always interesting and lovely to watch and great. And particularly, you know, the work you've been doing recently, I think, has been fantastic. But if you could look back at yourself when you were leaving RADA, (laughs) what, what advice would you give to him, that guy in the TIE company or coming out? Um, I would have, I would have told him not to worry so much and not to try so hard to work hard, mm-hmm. which I did. I believe I did, but I tried, I put effort in and I think that that played against me because, um, Effort is tension and effort and trying is a belief that you actually can't do. And if you don't think you can do, then you try. You have this slight disbelief area. And I, and I, and I had that and I would, I would gently tell him not to, not to try, but just to continue doing strangely. Yeah. I look at some early performances and I just go, mate, relax. <laughs> Me too, but it's it's such a hard thing because you want people to see that you've got talent. Yeah, it's a yeah, really yeah. it's a really difficult. Yeah. It's it's so difficult to be to rely on being subtle and thinking, but no one's seeing this, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so it's, it's you're in that pull and push all the time. Oh, how many times have you you done stuff for for all the other actors out there? You've done stuff and you've done it on screen, and you you know you're doing, you know, you know you've got the feeling right within you and then you look at the finished product and they haven't come close enough to see what you've been doing with the lines. They've been like on a big wide shot and then moved on and you go, but you you missed the, the little, you know, and that, that, and that happens all the time. And um, it pains me, but anyway. <laughs> and are you excited about what's in front of you? I mean, you mentioned a project that we can't talk about, but... Uh, yeah, I know, some of those. But, but are there lots of things, uh, you know, maybe you know about, you don't know about, but are you excited about what you're, what the future... Like, uh, yeah, very excited. There's a um, two-hander that um, Lolita has written, 
She wrote that's your wife, yeah. That's my wife, yeah, sorry. Um, so she's written a two-hander for the Almeida, which is me and Danny Sipani. And um, but I've never done that before. And it's it's got movement in it. It's got you've got a choreographer, we've got, you know, a DJ a musician, we've got designer, of course, and director. But um, it's gonna require everything to make the story work between these two men. And the idea that she wanted, she had this spark. She was working with Danny on something. She had this idea and she spoke to him about it. And um, she wrote, a, you know, paragraph and she presented it and then they got the commission. Um, and the idea is uh, love between two men that has nothing to do with sexuality or romance, but just two men who don't know each other meet and fall in love. And the, the love is platonic and powerful and strong, but has nothing to do with sex or gender. Well, it's music to my ears that you're going into the theatre. It's fantastic. <laughs> and thanks for revisiting Rosalind with me today. Oh, that's right. On, on the podcast. Right. It's so great to, to, to talk about it again. It was one of the big, big moments of my life, sitting oh, in the theatre watching it. It was just wonderful. So thank, thank you, you very so much. much. Thank you. <laughs> Who Am I This Time? Is it Just Voices and Dulali Production? Produced by Simon Lennigan, music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg and presented by me, David Morrissey. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.